Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up later in the show, we're going to talk all about state bonding, so stay with us. But first, recently we talked about Asian Americans on the show. They're the fastest growing population nationwide, including here in Connecticut. The state's Asian American population grew more than 60% from 2000 to 2010. A recent report looks at ways advocates for survivors of family violence can improve its outreach to Asian women in the state. To tell us more, we invited Wendy Mota Kasongo to, st- to the studio. She's Director of Diversity and Accessibility at the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Wendy, welcome to Where We Live. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Explain why the coalition decided to do this specific report. So, you know, uh, Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence is a nonprofit organization, and like many other nonprofit organizations, we're federally and, you know, state-funded. And It was a a conversation that we've had for a really long time, and I think we were just at a very interesting point where we can start doing something about it. So we did. And, um, you know, understanding, like you said, that the population, the Asian population is quickly growing, we want to be able to address that in a way that makes sense to victims of Asian descent. When we talk about Asian Americans, um, when we talk about Asian Americans in Connecticut, um, what parts of the state are they living, and where? What countries are we talking about? So, in terms of countries, the uh, U.S. Census tells us, for example, Cambodia, China, India, Japan, Korea, Malaysia, Pakistan, uh, the Philippine Islands, Thailand, and Vietnam. And so, thinking in terms of who's in Connecticut, which was part of the process for this. We, uh, we see pockets all throughout the states, but primarily in Fairfield County, New Haven County, and Hartford County. When we talk about um, family violence or domestic violence, uh, I guess we should maybe establish a framework of where people can go in the state for help um, if they need it. And then from there, how did you figure out what's a better way to reach uh, these, Asian, um, these Asian families? So it's still a process. You know, <laughs> we're still, um, I think this report really gave us an opportunity to start the conversation. But it's still a process in terms of services. Um, here's what we know, Lucy. We have 18 domestic violence programs programs in the state of Connecticut. The coalition is kind of like the mom or the umbrella agency to these 18 domestic violence program. We're here to support it. And we do things, a lot of things, in terms of services for victims in a very good way, right? So we have um, shelters, uh, counseling, court advocates. Um, but when working with underserved populations, we understand that there's a lot of victims that will not come through our doors. So while we can definitely um, say these are some local domestic violence program, part of this was also understanding how to serve people in a way that matters to them. And it sounds simplistic, but it's really the engine behind um, this whole project and this whole report. Um, At these shelters, at these community programs, were you seeing an uptick in clients of Asian descent? And were there challenges in how how to help them? Sure. So um, we we see some of them, and primarily through the courts, you know, um, and not only Asian, the most amount of victims that we serve come through the courts. And so, 
you know, criminal courts, mm-hmm. to be exact. And so some of these victims actually never make it back to the local program. So, yes, there are Asian victims that come through the court systems if there's been an arrest or if something has occurred related to family violence. But, again, this is really about understanding what we do, what um, what's happening in terms of the community, the Asian community, and then how can we better serve them. Um, I read the report, and we're going to link to our um, to the report on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Um, but I thought it was interesting when we talk about um, Asian cultures, obviously many different countries, many different customs and beliefs. Uh, but we look at um, the comparison between collectivist cultures versus individualist cultures. Can you explain that to our listeners and how um, that is a challenge when you're trying to reach people that are dealing with domestic violence? Sure. That's a great question, Lucy. I think, you know, in, in my years in in, in working in the domestic violence field, this is what I understand. The domestic violence movement uh, was born in the United States in the 1960s and 70s with um, kind of like hand-in-hand um, hand with the feminist mm-hmm. um, movement. And it was a group of uh, white middle-aged women who were feminists and didn't want to be um, mistreated or abused by their partners, right? And so I think it's a great movement, but an unintended consequence was really that some communities were mar- marginalized. And so because the, the movement was born out of that, a lot of our services and intervention um, mimic independent and individual kind of approaches to domestic violence. When we're working with the Asian communities, like other communities, we realize that it's a collective um, culture, meaning you know the family is upheld. You, um, it's not really deemed, it's not necessarily important for a woman to leave her husband and become independent and um, kind of go out on her own. And so when, and that was very different for us, right? When, when we look at the services that we provide, you know, it's it's kind of like the number one solution is leave the man, talk about it, reach out. And that's not necessarily the approach that um, would be the best approach uh, with Asian victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, collectivism really speaks to um, in getting the input from community members, family members, um, you know, um, and really solving issues in a um, more familial and uh, traditional way. Sometimes that may include the batter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that sounds, um, I guess, really problematic in the sense of, um, you know, again, in this country, if someone is being abused, like you said, the first step is leave the abuser. Right. But in certain um, cultures, the family unit is very important. They're worried about shame and stigma if they leave their spouse. So how do you reach um, these potential victims? So we're still learning. <laughs> we're still learning, but I think part of the solution is really looking at informal supports to, mes- to domestic violence. And I don't know if this is the right terminology, but almost coming in through the back door, really looking um, to create opportunities where, yes, we can talk about domestic violence, but that may not be the first thing on the list. And so looking at ways where we can support communities and families even and really um, almost creating the space where people will talk, and if there is family violence, we'll have an opportunity to connect them to resources, but really not necessarily going in domestic violence heavy. I don't know if that makes sense to you. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. I'm in studio with Wendy Mota Kasongo. She's with the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. The coalition just recently released a report about how um, the state could better serve 
Asian Americans living in the state, uh, many who come from countries where obviously the culture is different, and if there is abuse in the home, not necessarily mean that you that they're able to leave their home. And so Wendy's here to talk about um, ways to reach that community. You know, I was looking at the report, um, again, it'll be on our website, Wendy, but there was a case study of a woman, a Chinese immigrant. I'm not sure I'll pronounce her name right. Is it Chun Tao? Yes, that sounds good to me. <laughs> Just to kind of explain to our listeners um, some of the dynamics of going on with this particular individual uh, that was featured of, you know, uh, some of the issues of why she couldn't readily leave um, if she was being abused. So Shantao um, really mimics um, um, kind of like the scenario for maybe a, an Asian victim. She is 25 years old, and she came from China two years ago to join her husband, who immigrated five years ago. And a neighbor called the police after listening um, to some of the loud um, sounds, yells that were coming from the apartment. Um, and so when the police arrived, neither the police uh, sp- uh the police officers, I'm sorry, didn't speak Mandarin. And after an hour of trying to communicate and gather information, they left because there was not enough evidence for an arrest. And so uh, Chen Tao is a uh, victim of abuse that wants the abuse to end. Um, but she doesn't want the author- authorities involved. And I think that speaks to the fact that while um, 911 is an option for many victims to stay safe. It might not necessarily be an option for all victims. And so, um, you know, the the police do not play a rehabilitative role, role in her hometown, and that could be for many reasons. Immigrants come to this country, and they either trust or don't trust authorities. And so, especially when English is not your first language, it could be a very confusing, um, scary, lonely place to be. And so I, I think it gives us, this case gives us an opportunity to really look at some of the dynamics of um, family violence for someone that is coming to this country, doesn't understand the system. And, and listen, I mean, the system is confusing even for us born in this country. Can you imagine someone that's going through something as traumatic as family violence, does not speak the language, and has no idea how to address it? So that's really what the case is about. We talked a little bit about um, how domestic violence has been defined uh, through the years in this country. Again, when we think about domestic violence, we think about oftentimes a woman being the victim and it's her spouse, her male spouse, who is uh, perpetrating the crime against her. But I was reading in this report that in certain cultures, domestic violence ne- doesn't, isn't necessarily the spouse or the husband, other people in the family. Can you talk about that? Sure. So, you know, and again, even when we were uh, in the process of, of gathering some of this information, it was just very interesting because, yes, you're right, domestic violence is traditionally understood as the the women being the victims. So just as domestic violence professionals, we understand that it can happen in same-sex relationship. It can happen when the man is the victim. But within the context of this report, we very quickly understood that the dynamic can encompass family members as well. And I'll give you an example. Some of the victims that we saw and, and spoke about for the report um, were abused by the husband's mother, and so um, and physically abused, meant, you know, verbally abused and psychologically abused. So, because of the respect and kind of the hierarchical um, process and and way of seeing things, uh, the victim was abused and the abuse was promoted. 
um, by other family members because it's not okay to talk about it. So yeah, the mom-in-law, the mother-in-law was also part of, of the abuse. Yeah. So how do you reach, again, uh, victims within these communities where they may not have a lot of support? Their only support is their family. If there's abuse happening in the family, you know, where do you go from here? So it's a combination of, of different strategies. I think you know, on one end, we do want to um, partner and collaborate with the, the service providers and the entities that are already doing the work and that have the cultural knowledge for Asian um, communities in Connecticut. That's very, very important to us, starting these conversations um, with, um, you know, smaller organizations, but, you know, being able to see how can we support the work that they are doing. Um, and then the other piece to this is really, you know, education, building capacity for our member programs, our domestic violence advocates, so that if there is a victim that comes through our doors, we're either able to link them to someone to help with the process or ourselves better understand it. And then the last piece um, we, we're looking at, it's really outreach statewide. How can we send this message that this is important to the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence and that, honestly, this is just the beginning. So you're uh, collaborating with community organizations and partners in the community. Uh, what about training for uh, the authorities, the police departments? I think that's one aspect um, of it. Um, and, you know, it, we will get to that point. Absolutely, it's something that it's uh, necessary not only for Asian communities, but for any underserved community. Training is a huge part of it. Training not only law enforcement and first responders, but, you know, just professionals working with these victims. And, you know, we do have a training institute at CCADV, and that's definitely part of, of the curriculums that we put out there. But in, in particular, I mean, in specific to this report, it's, it's baby steps. So, yeah. yeah. I want to thank Wendy Mota Kasongo from the Connecticut Coalition Against Domestic Violence. We'll link to the report on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. Wendy, thanks so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me, Lucy. It was great being here. This is where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Last week on WNPR's weekly news roundtable, The Wheelhouse, Hartford Current columnist Kevin Rennie said the use of bonding in the state has changed. It's become another way of paying for things that used to be in the yearly general budget. That got us wondering, how has the state's practice of borrowing changed over the years? Who better to ask than budget guru Keith Faneth, a reporter for the Connecticut Mirror? He joins us now in studio. Hi, Keith. Uh, hi, I never get used to that title. <laughs> we love calling you the budget guru. <laughs> you, you're a good explainer of things that seem complicated uh, to most of us, including bonding. Why should the average uh, citizen, average taxpayer care about this? Um, I think in part because it is sometimes seen as so wonky. Um, there's not often, and I guess I'm, I'm casting equal blame across both sides of the aisle, there's not always an honest debate about it. The understanding is just that most people aren't going to get it, so people look for the, the one or two points that they think the public will grasp, and that's that's what they they're they're, they're focusing on. Uh, but we're really talking about the state's credit card. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have we have really two big financial packages that happen every year. You have the budget. We pay for things. Think of that as as paying for things in cash in your household. 
And then, again, there's the bond package, and you think of the credit card. And there are many legitimate purposes for bonding. Um, People think of things like municipal school construction, capital projects at colleges and universities, roads and and rail work, um, open space and farmland preservation, and, yes, the uh, small community-based projects in legislators' districts that sometimes get called pork barrel spending. Mm -hmm. Um, But for most of those things, and we can debate the pork – there's a valid purpose for paying for something over 20 years because if you're talking about, say, a road improvement or a bridge improvement, it's going to be used. And the question is maybe it should be extended into a second generation. Also, if you paid for them all at once in cash, you would have a very volatile budget. You'd have to come up with a ton of money in the year that you're finishing the Q bridge, and then the next year the expenses would drop off the grid. And the big debate going on at the Capitol right now is has the credit card become used more so sort of uh, to cover day-to-day expenses? Are we, In other words, are we buying our groceries with our credit card? We're cutting I'm, – I'm trying to do sarcastic air quotes on the radio. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work. But we're, we're uh, quote-unquote cutting expenses out of the budget, but we're not really cutting the expenses. We're just paying for them with borrowing, which means we're, we're actually increasing the cost because there's interest involved. And how does our interest that Connecticut pays, how is that um, impacted in terms of how much we're borrowing? What are we seeing? Well, um, what we're seeing, I mean, first of all, just to start, Connecticut is the most indebted state on a per capita basis in the nation. We have about $22 billion just in bonded debt. We're not talking about what we owe to the pension funds or what we owe for retiree health care for public sector workers. We're just talking about projects that we finance by selling bonds on Wall Street. Um, What we've been seeing over the last five years is an average of about $120 million in what I'll call traditional budget expenses moved onto the credit card just by the use of something called bond premiums. You might hear that tossed around, and that that is causing a problem with the capital. Um, Premiums are kind of like food. If you use them well, you're very healthy. If you eat milkshakes all the time, (laughs) you're going to end up with diabetes. Um, We need sometimes to offer a premium on Wall Street to issue our bonds. They're an effective marketing tool. And what that is is we might be looking to borrow money at a particular interest rate, and um, an investor says, "I, I want a higher rate, but the state really is not ready. They don't have the money for that. So what the investor says is, I'll give you a hypothetical. Say we were going to borrow money at 2% and the investor wants it at 2.2. The investor says, I'll give you the extra money that you'll owe, the difference in interest that you'll have to pay. I'll give it to you. I'll hand it to you right now. And then you can hand it right back to me. And you won't be any worse off. It'll be like you're paying 2%, but I'll still have on paper a 2.2% bond And that can be advantageous in the bond trading market. And don't worry, your listeners don't have to worry about that. The problem is we're not handing the money right back to him. Mm -hmm. We are taking that money and we're putting it in our checking account and we're using it to buy groceries. So it's like borrowing money, putting it in your savings or your checking account and treating it like income. 
This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. In studio with me is Keith Faneff, state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. We're talking about bonding, how the state is borrowing uh, to pay for a lot of different things in the state. Um, on the phone with us now is Representative Chris Davis. He's a ranking member of the Finance, Revenue, and Bonding Committee. He represents the towns of Ellington and East Windsor in the General Assembly. And he's also a member of the Bond Commission. Hi, Representative Davis. You're on Where We Live. Hi, good morning. So tell us what your role is as a member of the Bond Commission. Explain this to our listeners of, of how uh, this all works. So the Bond Commission is a 10-member uh, panel. Um, it, it's done by statute, I believe. And Keith, correct me there. But uh, it uh, features the chairman uh, of both the Senate and House chairman of the uh, Finance, Revenue, and Bonding Committee and the two ranking members of the Finance, Revenue, and Bonding Committee. Uh, the governor is the chair of the Bond Commission, um, he also has his uh, OPM secretary, his Office of Policy and Management secretary, uh, his commissioner of um, Department of Administrative Services, and then some of the constitutional officers also sit on the bond commission. So the state comptroller, the state treasurer, uh, state attorney general. Um, so right now, as it's structured, um, there's only two Republicans on the state bond commission, and the rest of them are uh, Democrats. Lately, we've we've been hearing from Republicans, specifically uh, Senator Fasano, Len Fasano, uh, about uh, criticizing the uh, Malloy administration and the Democrats for this uh, over reliance, uh, so to speak, on on borrowing uh, to pay for things in the state, and you know, including uh, pork in specific uh, districts. Uh, you know, you're often the one of the lone dissenting voices on the commission. I mean, uh, what's your take on uh, the state's practice of borrowing? Well, I mean, the State Bond Commission is, is rather unique in that um, we as a legislature, we authorize a certain um, kind of block grants, uh, amount of money for each type of project that you could have in the state of Connecticut. But it's really up to the governor, and it's a, a kind of a unique situation where the governor has the sole authority to determine what items get put onto the state bond agenda uh, and then ultimately what we end up voting on. Um, and I think a lot of the criticism that we've uh, seen in the last few months um, is where are the priorities for the state of Connecticut when it comes to uh, bonding? As Keith had just mentioned, we're one of the most indebted states as far as bonding goes. Um, we've seen bonding under the um, Malloy administration increase by almost a billion dollars uh, this year um, from when he first came in. We were averaging maybe $1.4 billion or so a year um, at, at its peak uh, for bonding. Uh, and now we're looking at potentially bonding up to $2.5 billion this year if the governor meets the numbers that he was talking about. And that's over just the last six years. We've seen almost a billion-dollar increase uh, in the amount of bonding that we do. So uh, as Keith had mentioned, many of these projects are, are something that we should be doing long-term, uh, paying for roads and bridges and, and uh, uh, things like that. But the criticism that has been coming up lately is where are the priorities for the general obligation bonds, the bonds that are paid for with the revenues that come into the general fund um, for things like whether they be uh, band shells in Wyndham uh, or private museums getting funding or statues in Hartford. Uh, are those the priorities uh, for the state of Connecticut or is it truly things that we should be spending money on like school construction, uh, roads and bridges, clean water, uh, those items that, that bonding is really supposed to be intended for? I wanted to ask Keith, since we mentioned Governor Malloy's administration, when we look back at Governor Rell, um, you know, how did she uh, treat the, the state's credit card? Well, uh, it, it's really apples and oranges, <clears throat> in part because of the economic circumstances during which uh, Jody Rell and Daniel Malloy have served as governor. Um, with the exception of the last couple of years, Governor Rell served during a very strong economic times. Um, 
she didn't need to rely as often on the credit card because, quite frankly, the money was there in the budget. Um, I mentioned, and it won't get wonkier than bond premiums. I won't put your listeners through that again. But we've seen over the last few years things like municipal aid, certain grants we've moved back onto the credit card. We give the towns about $60 million a year uh, for road maintenance. But believe it or not, the the single biggest thing they spend that on um, is snow removal. Well, when you see your roads being plowed, we're paying interest on that. We're actually borrowing that money that the towns use to hire contractors to plow their roads. Stem cell research, we used to pay for that out of cash. That's now in the operating, I mean, in the, in the, on the credit card. Um, certain pollution abatement programs, that's, I think, where you're seeing the concern that's happening now. But by, this, by the same token, uh, that didn't happen under Governor Rell in large part because that we, were, we were flush with cash. Um, the temptation when times are tight are the pressure is to, to take money out of the budget because people notice the budget and put it on the credit card because nobody pays attention to it, even though it ultimately is going to cost you more. That's probably uh, the biggest difference. There's one other I'll point out, though. Um, Chris mentioned how the Bond Commission is really the gatekeeper of borrowing. There, the, That's the panel that decides. The legislature, like, um, think of a restaurant menu. They can put all these projects on the menu potentially to be financed with borrowing, but only the bond commission can say we're going to do A, B, C, not D, not E. Um, However, we're starting to put food on our plate faster than we can eat it. When Governor Rell left office, we had about $3 billion in bonding that had been approved by the bond commission, but we still hadn't actually borrowed the money. It was approved on paper, uh, but the treasurer hadn't gone to Wall Street and borrowed the money, and it's not the treasurer's fault. She's not going to borrow it until we're ready to spend it. But because we don't have enough money in the budget to make payments on our credit card because we don't have enough uh, DOT architects and engineers to ramp up projects, we had about a $3 billion bonding backlog. That backlog, $7.5 billion about five and a half years later. Mm -hmm. So we are still going forward planning all this borrowing, but we can't even execute it, which is also making some people – I mean, that gets really wonky, but some people are wondering – well, why are we approving it all if we can't even get it out the door anyway? Mm-hmm. Because Wall Street does still pay attention and it doesn't they, – they still are concerned about the level of debt we're even planning. And that's a new development under this administration, much more so than the last one. So how does that impact our credit rating? Well, unfortunately, in the last couple of years, our outlook has not been good. Um, all four of the major – Wall Street credit rating agencies, Standard & Poor's, Fitch, Moody's, and Kroll have all at different times had us on what they call a negative outlook, which is we're watching you closely over the next couple of years, and usually that's the precursor to a potential downgrade. Since, In addition to that, two of the four that I mentioned have actually now downgraded us, which means in the long run it will cost us more money to borrow. So our children will be dealing with this as they pay taxes. <laughs> well, un- unfortunately, yeah, it's it's going to be an issue for some time. But I think probably the single biggest thing right now is what we're using the credit card for. That's probably um, the debate you're going to hear quite a bit between now and Election Day. And so if we weren't um, – if the state weren't using our credit card to pay for these, you know, pork projects in specific communities, I mean, the state's still pretty worse – pretty worse off, right, in terms of there's not enough money to pay for the important things like capital improvements. Well, I mean, th- this is this is the trade-off, though. If you, for example, 
um, the, the, the Republican minorities in the House and Senate had a proposal earlier this year, um, their, own, their own alternative budget, and they wanted to save about $70 million in payments on the credit card. That's the one way the credit card shows up in the budget. Our, we have to we borrow money. We have to pay on the principal and the interest. To save about $70 million in principal and interest, they were going to have to cancel probably about 10 times that amount mm-hmm. in borrowing. Now, what if that does come out of school construction? What if that does come out of projects at UConn and the CSU system and the community colleges? Those are projects that create jobs. There is a trade-off. Um, you know, Governor Malloy has a point when he says, look um, – a lot of the money we borrow does actually stimulate the economy. Um, of course, he's not going to point to the areas what we're also borrowing just to cover our operating expenses. But Connecticut needs to use its credit card. It's just in these times you really want to try to use that borrowing um, in ways that are going to put people to work who will then in turn be paying more income taxes. They'll be making more purchases. There'll be more sales tax, more economic activity generated in general. Representative Davis. And if I could, uh, just speak on what the Republican plan was. We actually not only put out our own budget, but earlier in the year we actually put out our own bonding uh, agenda um, that that called for uh, fully funding, or at least funding to historic levels, school construction projects to the tune of about $450 million a year. That would be uh, average or above average of what we were spending. Uh, We would have fully funded the CSU uh, projects, the Yukon projects. Um, but what we did call for is cutting back on the discretion that the governor had for uh, some of these projects in various districts around the state, kind of limiting that to about $100 million a year um, and saying, you know, that's where we can find significant savings. No, but the Republican um, plan, Chris, also would have capped actual bond issuances, literally yeah, how much have, money yeah. we could have borrowed to the tune of about a billion dollars, 800 to a billion dollars less. You would not have found 800 to a billion dollars in pork. That no. would have that would have unavoidably come out of construction work. And some of it would have been a huge uh, chunk shifting of it. from um, STO bonds, the special tax bonds uh, for bond, uh, transportation projects, and using some of those GO bonds to be able to cover some of those projects as well. Um, but yeah, I, I think Keith has a point. I mean, it does. You know, you have to prioritize where some of those projects are going to be. Um, you know, certainly we need to do something. Um, we need to be able to rein in some of the spending. In total, we would have been, in the, in the Republican plan, still would have been about $1.75 billion, uh, which historically would have been higher than what it was just a few years ago uh, by over $300 million a year. Um, so it certainly wasn't uh, some kind of draconian cut in, in bonding and, and projects being you know, halted as their shovels are in the ground. It would have been a situation where uh, we would have had to shift those priorities and, and really look at what we were doing as a state of Connecticut as far as bonding goes. We're talking about bonding on where we live, uh, how the state is borrowing uh, to pay for uh, capital improvements all the way to uh, pork projects. Uh, this is where we live. And uh, in studio with us is Keith Faniff, state budget reporter for the Connecticut Mirror. And on the phone, State Representative Chris Davis, uh, who's a member of the Bond Commission and represents the towns of Ellington and East Windsor in the General Assembly. You know, there was just a, a recent uh, Bond Commission uh, meeting uh, the other week. So of the things that are approved, can you talk about the process, Keith, of, of from now, once it's approved, where does it go? And again, when will Treasurer Napier uh, actually uh, get that money Part to be spent? It is, um, it is really confusing. If I can just quickly, I also wanted to mention, I, I should have, I tried to think of all the things I wanted to go through so everybody could learn everything about bonding. Um, 
Paying on our debt service takes up a big chunk of our budget now. One out of every $9 in the budget actually goes to pay on the credit card. So that's, I mean, it, it's it's a significant amount of money that you can't spend on other things. Um, in answer to your question, think of, I, I like to use this analogy a lot, think of bonding like a restaurant menu. Only the legislature can actually write the menu, and they're going to put more projects and more programs on there than we're actually ever going to implement. That's intentional. They are not, not, not and I don't mean that in a, that they're trying to be reckless. <clears throat> they, they're casting a wide net. So you might see a specific transportation project mentioned. As Chris pointed out, you might see um, a, a large pot of money for a program. The governor is given uh, large pots of money in something like the Urban Act, and this is a large amount of potential borrowing that he can use for various economic development projects. Then only the Bond Commission can actually decide it's time to borrow money for this item, it's time to borrow money for that item. And as Chris pointed out, we are starting to do a lot more in terms of putting the Bond Commission moving projects forward. Just because the Bond Commission approves it, though, and this is a part I think it's probably least understood at the Capitol, that doesn't mean the money's actually going to be spent. When the Bond Commission approves financing, all they're doing really is sending a permission slip to the treasurer saying, if anyone ever confronts you with a bill, then you can go borrow the money so we can pay it. But many times, the Bond Commission approves a project, particularly in the area of transportation, and uh, the administration decides, yeah, we still aren't really ready to do that work. We don't have enough people to get that project started. Or maybe we just don't have enough money in the budget to start making the payments on it if we borrow it. So the bond commission approval is just the last step, and it lags there. And again, you can't blame the treasurer. She's not going to borrow the money if we're not going to spend it. That's the last stage, and, and I hate to do this, but you'll hear there are a bunch of a verbs thrown around. The legislature, mm -hmm. they call it authorizes bonding. Don't think dictionary definition. That's got a very legal definition. Mm -hmm. The bond commission allocates. And then lastly, the administration allots the money. Um, so it really is a three-step process. And, and, as I, and as I mentioned, there's like $7.5 billion in potential financing allocated by the bond commission that still only exists on paper that we haven't done. And, and the treasurer, by the way, doesn't go to Wall Street on a project-by-project -project basis. Um, you want to wait until the interest rates are right. Certain times of the year we will go. We will borrow a big chunk of money, and then it will get it used. I, I will mention one last thing also. We keep our bonded dollars in a common cash pool with the same money that we use for the budget. So many times we're, I don't want to say, you know, borrowing, but we're temporarily transferring money over from the capital side into the budget side just to pay bills. And then the budget sort of has an IOU. It's got to square up later with the bonding. Um, and the problem is when the state gets into bad cash flow situations, some people think we're borrowing just so there's enough money in the cookie jar to pay the budget's bills. Mm. That's another problem why sometimes we borrow when people say, well, why are we even borrowing that money right now? Representative Davis, if I could return to you, you know, we keep hearing about the looming budget deficits um, in the upcoming years. I mean, are you confident that uh, the state's reliance uh, on uh, bonding is going to change in the next few years? 
Well, I think it's certainly a fear for people on both sides of the aisle, quite frankly, of, you know, how, how are we going to fund some of these projects that we want to continue to fund or we would like to continue to fund uh, when we're facing a potentially, you know, 2 to $3 billion deficit in the, in the next few years. Um, and Keith uh, mentioned many different uh, areas um, earlier that we've seen shifts from uh, general fund uh, allocations, uh, expenditures that we used to pay for uh, town aid road right out of the, uh, the budget. Uh, we used to pay for uh, stem cell research. Um, and this last year, uh, we shifted biomedical uh, research fund money um, that used to be paid for by the tobacco settlement fund um, that we get each year. Uh, we shifted that to uh, bonding so that uh, we can then sweep that uh, tobacco settlement fund money as a state of Connecticut um, to be able to pay for things um, other than what it was intended for. Um, I think there is a real fear that if we continue down the path that we're having now, um, more and more um, appetite would be for um, shifting these programs to bonding. Um, unfortunately, as we have been talking about for the last few minutes, we really can't afford to continue to do that uh, with the amount of bonding that we have uh, on the books. Like you said, uh, over $7 billion uh, that has been allocated and hasn't been issued yet. Um, you know, we, we really have to be careful about how we're going to move forward with shifting some of these programs to bonding, uh, especially given the fact that, you know, interest rates aren't going to stay low forever. Uh, and if we dig ourselves into a hole where we're wholly reliant on funding a lot of these programs through bonding, uh, when interest rates continue to go up, it's only going to cost our kids and our grandkids even more if we want to continue with those programs. I, I just wanted to add, because that, that's a really good question about our where our bonding is going, heading potentially into, you know, if the economy starts to slip in the next couple of years. Um, one big area that we do borrow periodically that I left out are what are called economic recovery notes, which is just jargon for deficits. When we literally run the budget in the red and we don't have any money left in the bank, we have to borrow. For example, in 2009, we had emptied our emergency reserve, which everybody calls the rainy day fund. The budget closed a billion dollars in the red. So we borrowed the money. And we're still paying off our debt, our bonded debt from the last recession. We started to make headway on that, and we took a two-year break in the last two years of Governor Malloy's first term. We took what his budget director called a holiday from paying on our debt, which also had the advantage of keeping the budget down during the last two years of Governor Malloy's term. Well, now that money, we're paying on it again. Plus, since we refinanced it, we're paying an extra $40 million in interest for kicking that can down the road. Um, but we have almost nothing left in the rainy day fund again. We only have about $150 million, which sounds, how can I say that's not much? But that doesn't even represent 1% of our annual operating costs. Kevin Lumbo, the comptroller, says you should have a cushion of about 15%. <laughs> so that means even if a year from now we finish with another deficit, we're probably going to have to borrow. And if we go into recession, you can see you're not talking about borrowing $100 million. If we go into recession, you could see revenues drop up $1 to $1.5 billion in one year. And then you could be looking at another major use of the credit card just to allow Connecticut to square the books at the end of the fiscal year. And what about more cuts in the state budget? You know, we've heard about uh, layoffs and um, vital services, um, uh, reduced uh, services. I mean, is it just a, um, a warning that this will continue? Well, you're going to see probably no matter what a combination of cuts and tax increases on a fairly regular basis, arguably 
for the next two decades because we're entering a period where the other part of our debt, the money we owe the pension system and the money we owe for retiree health care, obligations that are coming due and big expenses that we haven't saved for, and they are driving up the cost. These are parts of the budget that are growing by double-digit percentages year after year in, in, in many cases. So if you're seeing growth of that kind, it's so much. It's kind of like, well, if, if you have a tree stump in your backyard and I send you out with a pen knife to shave a few pieces off, that's great. You didn't make the problem any worse, but that's just not enough. I, I, I think Connecticut will be hard-pressed to start avoiding things, particularly once we get into the 2020s. Representative Davis, what are you hearing from your constituents? Obviously, this conversation does not instill a lot of confidence uh, in our listeners in terms of how uh, the state is managing its finances. No, I mean, I think I think that's a, a very good point. I think people's confidence level in state government is is very low, uh, especially over these last few years. I mean, when when I, and I just had a um, meeting at my local senior center the other day, and and the main topic was the budget and how we're going to handle it and what it means for the future of the state of Connecticut. Um, you know, when when we say you know we had a largest tax increase in 2011, we had to come back and do it again uh, just last year or two years ago. And now, you know, in Keith is mentioning, we're going to either have to do it again uh, uh, in the next couple of years or make drastic cuts that we haven't seen before. Um, I, I think it sends a... No, I said a, you're going to do both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I mean, you may have to um, in order to make things meet here. Um, you know, one of the arguments is that, you know, we could have been cutting back over the last few years rather than uh, having everything come to roost uh, this year uh, with the amount of layoffs that we've had to do uh, or that we're supposed to do and we haven't done yet. Um, in this fiscal year. Um, I think the fear is that, you know, the rainy day fund is pretty much emptied. Um, People recognize that now. Um, They know that we're going to be facing deficits because revenues are not meeting projections that we thought we were going to have over the last few years uh, as a state. And it's a situation where our economy is just stagnated uh, and not growing anywhere near at the pace that the rest of the country is. Um, and I think people fear that, you know, unless our economy turns around, those revenues are going to continue to decline. And the policies that we're making in Hartford uh, could potentially be driving uh, some of those wealthy individuals out of our state. Um, and it's not even just policies coming out of Hartford. Some of the federal policies for taxes may be driving people out of our state when it comes to, uh, you know, onshoring money um, back into, into America in this next year. You know, the real fear is that some of these hedge funds, uh, managers and some of these other individuals with high income uh, will be making the decision that, yes, we'll have to pay those federal taxes when we onshore this money, but we can choose to move somewhere else and not pay uh, state taxes. Uh, and I think we're already starting to see that. New Jersey's had a huge impact because of that. Um, and I think we've seen a few of our major millionaires move out of our state in the last couple of years uh, in part uh, because of that. And that's only going to continue to drive revenues down and cause us even more budget problems in the years to come. I'll let Keith Faneth have the last word before we break. Oh, I should have just pointed out, Lucy, the problem with our pensions is not something that happened overnight. This big cost pressure on the budget actually goes back all the way to 1939. For about seven decades, we didn't save enough money. Between 1939 and 2010, um, past governors and legislatures hired state employees and let the future find the money for their benefits. So it's, it's not something that developed overnight. 
Well, I want to thank Keith Fan of State Budget Reporter for the Connecticut Mirror, also State Representative Chris Davis from uh, the towns of Ellington and East Windsor for joining us uh, to talk all about bonding. Uh, when we return, we're going to hear from a student in Connecticut who's in Cleveland to protest outside the Republican National Convention. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Illegal immigration was front and center opening night at the Republican National Convention in Cleveland. Trump's campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, was transformed into Make America Safe Again and featured speeches about the importance of border control and delegates heard from Americans who've lost loved ones in crimes committed by undocumented immigrants. Some members of Connecticut's Students for a Dream traveled to Cleveland to protest Donald Trump's rhetoric on immigrants. One of them joins us by phone now. Uh, Yanamar Cortez is in Cleveland again with the group Connecticut Students for a Dream. Yanamar, you're on Where We Live. Hi, hello, my name is Yanimar. I came and traveled to Cleveland, Ohio to um, speak up about the hatred that has been coming at us. Um, I came here with United We Dream Action, and I'm very excited to tell you guys about the action and why we're strong and why we should not give up and why we should stand up to hate the hatred that has been coming from the Trump's um, presidency. Well, Yanimar, tell me a little bit about your family background. How did you come to Connecticut? Yeah, okay. Um, I'm originally from Mexico. I came here when I was two years old. I was brought here, you know, for the same reasons that everyone's brought here for a better future so I can get an education so I can better myself and, you know, become someone that can help others uh, more than I'm doing right now with my education. Uh, so I've been living in Connecticut all my life. It's been my home. America has been my home. So just hearing all the stuff that Trump's been saying about separating us, building a border, it's just heartbreaking because it's like separating two worlds that I live in that I love. I love Mexico and I love America because it's my home. So it's just, it's very heartbreaking and um, it's honestly so hate, it's so, so much hate going on. Oh, Yanamar, if you could explain to, um, you know, listeners and uh, to people who really believe that border control is something that the country uh, should be for, um, they should be able to control who comes into our country, and that there's a legal system in place to do that. Um, can you explain to our listeners, you know, you know what your ideas are on terms of, of of helping people who want to come to this country, but to do it in a legal way? Okay. Yeah. Um, I think when people think about um, illegals, as they say, um, coming in the country, they don't really see the reason why they come. They just see it as, it's, you know, it's illegal. But if we look back and we actually look at the problem of why they're coming, we, we can see that they come for, because of poverty. We can see that they come because, um, you know, opportunities that they don't have in the countries. And as we say, America is, is so great and has opportunities. So um, I think I think we miss the real problem and we accuse them of things that are not true, and we, like, put labels on them as criminals, but in reality, they're just people who come here to search for better people in poverty mm-hmm. and people that, that we should be helping. So I think we should step back and look at the real problem because I think we miss it and we don't recognize it. Were you able to listen to um, the speeches last night at the Republican National Convention, and, and what were your thoughts? Uh, so I wasn't able to listen to a lot because um, we went to the rally and we came kind of late. But I, I did listen to a few commentaries and just some saying that, well, there was a lot of stories about immigrants um, killing others and calling them criminals. Um, I just 
once again, I just think that because most, let's be honest, most of the people that were there at the event, they're part of that, you know, the top um, dependency with money. So I just don't think they actually see the real problem. They actually see the poverty that's in America and that's, and that's happening. So they just see it from the other side, you know. They don't see both sides, and that's what, that's what's sad about it because if they actually stepped back and they took a look at both sides of the, of the country that we are in, then they'll see that that's not the real problem, that we shouldn't be accusing them. Instead, we should find a way to help, find a way to help solve this poverty, find a way to give them opportunities so things like that don't happen. You're part of Connecticut Students for a Dream, which um, advocates again for students um, who came here um, as young children. Um, and under President Obama, you were able to have um, a sort of status in terms of having a work permit and not to worry about uh, being deported. I mean, what are your fears with a, a new president um, in the White House? My fear is that DACA will be taken away. As we know, it's an executive action. So that's that's my major fear. And that's not even my only fear because I don't just worry about myself. I worry about my community. I worry about my people of color. Um, we're already being oppressed. So imagine all that hatred coming from Trump against our people already, and it's just like his campaign. Imagine when he comes into presidency. Just imagine how that would be. You know, it's just, it's horrible. So I do worry about myself, but at most I worry about my people, my community, because I think that's what, that's what Trump is missing. I think he's just worrying about the top percent, and he's not really looking back and worrying about our people, the people of color, the people in the community. Um, we just have a, a, under a minute, Yanamar, uh, again, you're talking about uh, traveling to Cleveland to protest outside the Republican National Convention against some of Donald Trump's uh, policy and, and rhetoric. What are your plans uh, later in this week in Cleveland? Yeah, so our plan here, we had um, two goals. We wanted to show how the Trump presidency would be, how it would look, how it would be filled with fake hatred, and we did. We did that. We um, united with several other communities, um, and we showed that, and we're still going to show it throughout the week. We had a banner drop this morning, and it, it read, um, you know, the GOP plus Donald Trump kills. It read um, signs like that. It was just very successful, and we're having an okay. immigrant community. On Thursday. Okay, Yenamar, we're actually running out of time, but I want to thank you. Yenamar Cortez joins us, joining us from Cleveland, where the group's Connecticut Students for a Dream is protesting outside the RNC. This is where we live.